Hello, and welcome back. We've got another fantastic guest episode for you today, courtesy of Media Indigena, a weekly roundtable discussion of Indigenous perspectives, hosted and produced by Rick Harp. If you've listened all the way through our climate action miniseries, Scales of Change, then I think you'll recognize frequent Media Indigena panelist, Candace Collison. The format is pretty different from what we make here at Future Ecologies, in that it's just pure conversation. But it's always deeply thoughtful, engaging, and inspirational. This episode is no exception. It's the first of a two-part discussion with Dr. Max Liboron, director of the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research, all about their new book, Pollution is Colonialism. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Rick Harp from Winnipeg. This is Media Indigena, episode 258. On this week's Indigenous Roundtable, Pollution is Colonialism. That's the straight-to-the-point title of a brand-new book by Max Liboron, Assistant Professor of Geography and the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Research at Memorial University. Among their core arguments that any effort looking to resist environmental harms must trace them back to their ultimate source, the violence of colonial land relations. A violence, the author argues, even well-intentioned environmental science and activism can reproduce. In a moment, we'll sit down with that very author, but first, we want to take a moment to thank those who make this program possible, our patrons on Patreon. And that includes newer patrons like Mireille, now pledging $5 every month, and at $8 every month, it's Sonia. We also have a pair of one-time investments to acknowledge, both via PayPal. Debbie at $60, and at $100, Yuria, who adds this note, Thank you, relatives, heart, truth, power. Hey, thank you, all of you. As you can see, there's lots of ways to help our show grow. Learn how at mediaindigena.com support. And with that, let's turn now to part one of our conversation with Max Liberon, who, along with her professorial duties, finds time to be the director of CLEAR, the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research. Also at the roundtable, Media Indigena regular Candice Collison, Associate Professor in the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies and the Graduate School of Journalism at UBC. Max Libor, welcome to Media Indigena. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just to give our listeners a sense of, of how this extended conversation is going to work, I was thinking the first half, the first episode, would talk about how we became a world awash in plastics, reserving the second half of our conversation to talk about how we might become less so. I was almost going to say a world without plastics, but that would be horribly naive but as we talked about off mic too, Max, you're like, well, we may not want to actually put that forth as a goal, correct? Yeah, annihilation's a pretty rude relationship. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. we, we tend to want to avoid complete annihilation of anything. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
and we'll we'll unpack that a lot more as we go through. But I, you know, it's funny in 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 preparing for this conversation, even before I cracked open the the, the ebook, so to speak, I thought it would be useful for me to take my own crack at defining what pollution is, and then get you to pick it apart. <laughs> that sounds like a really good time. <laughs> and perhaps, ironically, you will dispose of my definition. And uh, I will try to keep these bad puns to a minimum. Uh, don't, not sure I can keep that promise, but here we go. So I thought, is pollution basically any, and I, and I wrote it down, so I'm just going to read what I wrote <laughs> uh, so that it isn't, uh, I was going to say contaminated by reading your book, but anyway, oh, sorry. two puns in 30 know, seconds, you're winning. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry. Here's what I wrote, or I, and I wrote it in the form of a question. Max, is it any byproduct that cannot be readily and safely absorbed or returned to its original form by the habitat where that waste is disposed of? Wow, that's an amazing definition uh, and one that no... Well, it's actually interesting because that's a, that's a definition based on the concept of assimilative capacity. The idea that uh, bodies of water, human bodies, ecological bodies can absorb a certain amount of contaminant, and that is the proper role of land in the pollution relationship. And I can talk about that all day. But the actual, quote unquote, scientific textbook definition of pollution is you can have a certain amount of contaminant in an environment, which you also alluded to, but there's a moment when the ecosystem, like you sort of talked about, Rick, it can no longer absorb it or assimilate it or dilute it or make it unharmful. You named one of those ways. I think he's called it returning it to its constituent parts, but that's just one in the rainbow of ways the land can like eat it up. The moment it can't do that, then it's pollution because that's the moment that harm starts to occur. So in, in scientific definitions, there's a, there's a difference between contamination and pollution. And my argument in pollutionist colonialism is that is a very colonial definition. Hmm. Um, should we introduce your dog just so everybody <laughs> knows oh, what's yeah. going on? That's a dog that is not being well absorbed by its environment. Uh, <laughs> that's Nelly, everybody, brother of Kukum, who is one of my dogs. And he is a city or a country dog who is in the city for the very first time today. And he is having trouble acclimatizing to the front hall. Okay. So yeah. just, you know, just so everyone knows what's going on there. So continue, please. I'm sure Nelly will help out when needed too. So... One of the one of the the main ideas in in my work and in the book is that this idea that the the proper relationship for land is as a sort of holding cell or a worker for pollution dilution or assimilation right the idea that it it can be uh, sort of reserved for colonial and industrial goals and desires and futures is a colonial land relation mm. and it's pretty screwed up to think that oh I'm going to make something uh, or industrial we're going to make something that the land will just have to deal with and and we'll try and make sure that it doesn't cause harm. But you know what? At some point it probably will. And we'll just have to police that boundary, which is what regulatory environmental law does. Um, and environmental science is usually focused on finding that sweet spot, right? Where is that moment where where the land can no longer absorb it and harm starts? Kind of like the second last straw. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's locate the second last straw and then pollute up to one and a half of the second last straws, right? As much as, as much as we can get away with, right? <laughs> exactly. And that's what, that's what like, it's called the permission to pollute system, right? This idea that you can have 0 0.010 milligrams of arsenic per liter of drinking water, and that's cool. 
but any more than that, and that's regulated as unsafe. That whole relationship is one big ball of colonial wax. Gosh, it's almost like saying, how hard can I hit somebody and not leave a bruise? Exactly. <laughs> like if you think it becomes really naturalized too, like that is the proper role of nature. But like you're not allowed to hit your aunt even if she can handle it, right? If she's a big aunt. That's just rude. But pollution is like, no, you can hit her till just before, until she drops to one knee, right? Although to continue the metaphor, she's going to hit back. And that's what the earth is doing to us. Um, let's put let's put a pause here because I think it's important to to note that that Candace, this, the very fact we're talking to Max about this very book, it was at your suggestion, your invitation, and I'm wondering uh, what is it about Max's work that you felt made made it a perfect fit uh, for for Media Indigena. Well, it's such a pleasure to have Max on Media Indigena talking about this. I actually looked at this book in its earliest form. Uh, I got to be a reviewer on it. You know, in the academic world, we do these blind reviews so the person who uh, you're reviewing doesn't know it. Um, and I was so... Cat's uh, out of the bag now. It's not blind now. <laughs> you just told everybody. Oh, exactly. Candice, come on. <laughs> uh, it's also a tradition after a book comes out to tell the author that you were one of the reviewers. I, oh. I had that done to me with I both of my that. books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so this like, is my first book, so now I know. Oh, it's good. That's good. Yeah. So anyway, so I got to look at it, and I was really amazed and impressed about the way that Max was bringing in Indigenous studies, Indigenous concepts, Indigenous science into, you know, big S science, right? Like the, the science that we think of when we go to a museum of science. In fact, I've encountered uh, exhibits about Max in uh, the Royal Ontario Museum uh, when I was there with my kids. It's like a kid's science museum. So mm. the kind of work... <laughs> <laughs> The kind of work that Max does is really out there in the public circulating and bringing all of this sort of thinking about Indigenous knowledge to it in a really powerful way. Um, and in a way that I think Max argues throughout the book is very specific, very place-based. You know, that science is about relations, I think is only really just dawning on the scientific community. And I can tell you that because I talk about climate change in mixed audiences with scientists and social scientists. And a lot of indigenous ways of thinking about the world are still relatively new in those kind of contexts. Cool. Although, you know, you, you say that uh, this isn't a conversation that's happening. And the, the key part that you said was in places where Western science is dominant, because the conversations I'm having are not new to the vast majority of uh, indigenous folks who are doing science. Mm. Uh, on their homelands in their own way, et cetera. Um, it's just new to academia, which is a little late to several games. Yeah, that's really true, actually. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of the context that I've been in where science is discussed, uh, Western science is at the center. Yeah. So you're not um, hearing, seeing, experiencing um, Indigenous people at the table except in you know political contexts. Yeah. And I think that's the difference is, is there's a very different circulation. Yeah. Before we get too much into that, and I'm very interested in that, I still want to kind of talk about the basics uh, and, and something you get into right off the hop in your introduction. You know, I'm used to talk, I mean, maybe it's a function of the English language, but I'm used to talking about plastic. And you say we should actually be speaking of plastics uh, in the plural. <laughs> yeah. Just like that. Yeah. Plastics. 
if we could just do that from now on, that would be the best. <laughs> Plastics <laughs> like a snake from the Jungle Book. But yeah. um, <laughs> what's more important to understand first, what pollution is or what plastics are? Because as you note, in a very real sense, the one emerged prior to the other. And I'm sure most of us in our common imagination just lump them together, but you want to separate them out. Yeah, so so I would say there there is a chicken and an egg order here, and the first one is pollution, um, and then plastic is a specific pollutant, and as a you know a, a, or a suite of pollutants, as you as you correctly say. But and it, what's interesting about plastics is they they sort of don't fit the the modern concept of pollution in certain ways. But actually, the modern concept of pollution doesn't have troubles with that because things like carcinogens, which automatically start causing harm no matter how much there is, and like assimilating it is actually how it works and makes cancer. Um, that doesn't fit either. And and Western science has just been just fine. Um, you know, with those sort of weirdnesses. So like plastics don't really assimilate either. Um, and Western science and poly says, yeah, we don't really care about that specificity. So I think pollution and its land relations is the bigger, more powerful, more dominant category. And when things show up to challenge it, uh, it doesn't matter as much as I was hoping in the case of plastics. So, you know, when we are encouraged to recycle and we'll get into whether that's a misnomer in the case of plastic, there's a number system, those little triangles yep. with, the, with the numbers in it. Yep. Uh, how well does that number system convey the array of plastics out there? Poorly. Those are called resin identifiers. Um, and there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, all of the rest too. Um, and there's probably, you know, there's many, many, many more uh, polymers, right? The, basically the chemical name for plastics. Um, and then there's many, 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 many more uh, chemicals that get added into those polymers that are different sorts of chemicals. And so you don't, you can't even depend on those things for, for recycling because even a number three plastic can be either extruded or form molded to different processes. And they actually meet, has different recycling processes. Um, so there's actually, um, different moves and different municipalities and different places to get rid of the resin identifiers because they're really misleading. Right. Um, and no one uses them except for maybe sorting and recycling thing, but, but they're not being useful either. They're starting to use lasers instead, which are more reliable. So they're getting gotten rid of. Huh. And, and again, just to kind of ground us in the scale of the, of the plastic or plastics problem, um, is there a stat uh, that might on its own convey that, that scale, something you pull off the shelf and just say, how, how are we? Well, consider this. I think the handy stat I have is 5 trillion pieces of plastics in the ocean. Trillion. Um, but th I mean, that's not helpful. Like what's a trillion? Who knows? Isn't it a thousand billion? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't even know what a thousand billion is. Right. So yeah. just like a ton, there is a ton of plastics. And I mean, the, the easier way is like, look, or, just think of your own body. You don't even have to look about the room around you in and on your own body. You are covered in plastics. You have plastic fillings. You have plastic contacts. You might have a pacemaker. You've certainly breathed in microfibers like house dust. That's made of plastic. Spoiler, skin and plastic. Um, you might have, you know, joints. You might have implants. Like those are all plastic, honey. So even you don't even have to go outside your own body to figure out how ubiquitous plastics are. In every single environment we have, scientists have ever looked at, bottom of the Mariana Trench, Mars, Arctic glaciers, there is plastic. So it's very uneven, and that's where justice and some of my work comes in. But plastic is everywhere. So that's that's the easier sort of scale. To, that's the holy shit scale in a way that like trillion what doesn't really do. 
you know, the way science or the way we talk about plastic and people, it's as if there's a sharp division. My body is its own temple. And then there's things outside of that body. And it's like convenient if, if you want to pretend that your body is immune or impervious. And what you've just said about plastics just underscores that. Yeah, there's this cool study that came out oh, at this point, maybe a decade ago. But so people, so BPA, bisphenol A is a chemical that's added to a few different types of plastics, including the lining of tin cans for food and food packaging and polycarbonate water bottles. And, and people are really freaked out about BPA for a while. And so this, these scientists did this study where they had these bunch of families and they eliminated all possible sources of BPA from their diet. And then they measured the BPA in their bodies and, and BPA moves through your body pretty quickly. So whatever's measured in your body, you've ingested in at least the last 10 hours. And they reduced those families' body burdens by 40% by eliminating all sources of BPA. 60% was left over from wherever, who knows, touching things, breathing, whatever, right? So plastics are infrastructural and they're infrastructural for life as well as for harm. So there's there's this part, um, actually, I don't think it's in the book. I think it's in another piece of writing I did where I talk about how on one of the one of the training voyages that I did as a, as a marine scientist, um, so I was not in charge of the boat. I was a trainee. And we were out in the middle of the uh, North Atlantic Ocean, and we came across this uh, conglomerate of plastic. It was buoys and ropes all tangled up. And the scientists on board were like, well, let's pull it out. The other scientists on board were like, let's pull it out. But if you popped into the water, this was not close to Newfoundland and Labrador. The water was warm enough to get into. Um, we popped into the water, and there were reef fish also like little ecosystems swirling around. So brightly colored fish that do not belong in the North Atlantic. And so that had probably come from the Caribbean through the Sargasso Sea and into the gyre. And it carried its little ecosystem along with it. And there were things for those fish to eat, like things growing on the plastic. It was a thriving ecosystem that was also poisoned, right? So there was definitely BPA. And if if we had, if I'd looked in those fish for plastics, I would have found them. And if we had looked for BPA in those fish, we would have found it. But they were thriving. And so this problem of like dividing plastic from life because it's horrible, first of all, is it has theoretical and conceptual and cosmological problems, but also just feasibility, not really available. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I really got interested in plastics and sort of the ubiquity in our environment when I had my first child. I feel like that was the time when I started being really aware of just, you know, what kind of harms were so present and that we we weren't really thinking about them. And at the same time, I had a, a grad school colleague who was um, doing sort of early research on endocrine disruption and, you know, introduced me to the work of Theo Colburn and, and people who have been thinking a lot about this. And so, like, to me, this is the this is the the challenge uh, for all of us is that we're used to thinking of harm as something you stay away from instead of something you contend with. And so I, don't know. I mean, you probably get people asking you all the time for advice. I'm assuming, Max, yeah, uh, around how do we contend with this, especially when you have growing children and, yeah. you know, or you're, you know, you're worried about uh, immune compromised family and friends. So actually, I used to have a New York City hustle when, when I was a grad student studying this stuff. And pregnant, wealthy New Yorkers would have me come into their home and do a plastic audit. And I oh, could point wow. out all of the things they could replace for the exact reasons that you point out, Candace, is this is where people became aware 
um, of plastic harms and we're trying to avoid them. And I made so much money on those plastic audits. <laughs> and I also always told them, by the way, this won't work. And they're like, here's my money, do it again. <laughs> right? So, so this idea that you can, that you're somehow autonomous and separate and yes. have, you know, it's, it's so strong. And I mean, I took those people's money and was happy and paid for my graduate school, but, but it doesn't work. And it, it's really interesting because sort of Rick, when you started this discussion about is plastic, like is the definition of pollution, which was well-written and articulated this, this idea that whatever the earth can't absorb is it's that's pollution, except for your body is absorbing this and you're still calling it pollution. But that's really what it's, if, if it's pollution operating properly in the, in the modern and colonial definition of pollution, your body is supposed to absorb that uh, and is supposed to be a sink for that. And that is properly what your body's supposed to do in that relationship. The fact that you have a problem with that shows that that sort of definition isn't quite as as solid and celebrated as we might like. Um, and of course, things like consent <laughs> come into this and and uh, power dynamics about who gets to choose that and who don't. But uh, yeah, there's a tension there. So another mistake I made in approaching the, the book mentally before actually getting into the book was just, just thinking that you were essentially equating plastic with colonialism and I thought initially, um, oh, you could have just called the book Plastic is Colonialism. But in fact, you don't want that conflation to happen uh, necessarily, uh, or or you feel like that's a path that takes us away from the important considerations. And so all that to say, I hope this question is formulated okay, which is when does plastic become colonial? Or when is it particularly colonial? I mean, maybe that question is doing what I fear, not really helping, but, but I get the sense that you don't want to, or you don't think it's helpful to demonize plastic. Um, on the other hand, I'm having trouble thinking of how plastic could have been created if it wasn't for colonialism. Okay. Well, perfect. Let's talk about the creation of plastic. Okay. So if you ever see a, uh, a graph of plastic production globally, you'll see the graph always starts at 1945. Mm -hmm. But plastics of different types of plastics, Bakelite, Cellulite, all these things, have been around since the 1880s. So what happened between 1880 and 1945? Plastics were very different than they are right now. First of all, and most importantly, they were not mass produced and they largely were not disposables. And in fact, the mythology goes, and there's debate as to whether this mythology is technically true or not, or whether it was spun as a mythology as part of a sort of scientific project. But around the 1880s and, and 1900s, after colonialism and ex colonial extraction was sort of running its course, things like tortoiseshell and ivory and shellac from beetles were running in short supply. And so plastics were specifically invented or, yeah, specifically invented and used to replace these things and to give those animals a break from endangerment. So it was actually seen as an environmental good and it was a seen as a, uh, an artisan project, not a cheap disposable product. So that, so plastics have been otherwise. I mean, it also has some very uh, acute pitfalls, but, but making it so that uh, relatives or relatives aren't killed into extinction for ivory uh, seems like a good idea. seems like a less <laughs> colonial land relation at least. Um, but it's after World War II when a, when a whole ton of research and development from all sides of the World War got poured into plastics that they became uh, flexible and, and versatile and all. Plastics were kind of crappy. Like, so billiard balls were one of the ivory, right? Were one of the first things that plastics were used for. Oh. And they had this problem where on contact they would explode. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
makes for an exciting game. <laughs> oh, super exciting. But like, you know, they had, but, but that's, that's because they were still sort of in their infancy and like, like rain jackets would dissolve in the rain. Like all of these problems happened. But after the world war, when all this money got put into parachutes and all this sort of thing, um, they stabilized in such a way. But then after the world war, what were you going to do with all this plastic and, and, and what were you going to do with all this culture, especially in the United States and other places, the Soviet Union, all these places that had turned to thrift, right? In the war effort, like everything goes into the war effort. You don't waste anything. You don't dispose of anything. No such thing as a disposable. There is a moment where um, multiple industries, paper, cardboard, plastics said, we need to make disposables to move goods through households, not into them. Because then people buy shit over and over and over again, and that is money. And so these literal campaigns happen to teach people how to dispose of things and how to use disposables. Right? It's in the graduate, this guy who doesn't like know how to use fast food and like, how do I eat this without cutlery? I can't even imagine, right? So people had to be taught this, and then it gets naturalized. And this concept of like, ooh, disposable plastics. Plastics last forever. Disposables get used for like an average of less than 30 seconds. If I had a design student who came up with that formula, they would fail that assignment. <laughs> but in a colonial idea where you're like, you know what? But land's job, like the world's job, nature's job is to hang on to this stuff and assimilate it and keep it and store it and bury it forever and ever. Yeah, let's make this 30 second forever plastic. Right. So so there's this moment where plastics become this thing that we think of as them now. And they didn't used to be like that. But you know what? Inherent in the name disposables is itself a marketing bullshit notion because it's not disposable. You're just moving it from one place to another Bingo. and it doesn't break down. Like what, what is the shortest, uh, if I can use this phrase, half-life of, of most plastics, like stuff for soft drinks or cutlery or, or containers that we get for takeout that we're using so many more of now during the pandemic because restaurant, you're not allowed to sit in restaurants. So there are a bunch of numbers, 100, 200, 1,000, 10,000 years. But the thing is, uh, no plastics have ever existed in the world for their full life. So we don't really know. And the way those numbers happen is a scientist in a laboratory takes a plastic and puts it in a vibrating, well-lit jar of urea or uric acid, piss, essentially. Not really piss, but the chemical equivalent of piss. Um, and shakes it and vibrates it and lights it. Uh, and then measures how the polymer strands are loosening up and then mathematically extrapolates that to say, okay, how long would it take it to totally shake apart? And that's where those numbers come in. So they're bullshit numbers or they're, sorry, I just pissed off all the chemists. <laughs> they are highly modeled numbers based in no real life empirics. I probably still pissed them off. Um, but also we don't know what happens when, when, a when a polymer loosens up, does it create extra toxicants? Does it, is, are the little versions toxic or also plasticky or something like that? We don't know. So Max, what you're telling me, uh, is that we're basically conducting one big real-time experiment. Yes, but you could have moved back to like the atomic bomb on that one. You didn't have to wait for plastics to show up for that to happen. <laughs> yeah. No, but in, in terms of plastics, yeah. like we, we all have, we have all this shit out there. God knows what it's going to do. God knows how long it's going to take to, to, to truly break down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you back up the truck enough, it takes us back into oil and natural gas too, right? So mm -hmm. it's also part of this extra cluster of climate change and extraction. Um, and the petrochemical industry and the plastics industry share a lobby, 
which no one will be surprised about, the chemical association of, uh, in the United States, one of the biggest lobbies in the world because it's oil plus petrochemicals and plastics come out of the petrochemical sort of uh, complex. Hmm. So, yeah, big, long experiment. But as you write in your book, when we enter the realm of colonialism, it is the assumptions and presumptions that go into where this stuff is going to be, quote unquote, disposed of. In other words, the land and the waters. Basically, it's a colonial relationship to those spaces and to the people whose connections to that land have been in place for millennia. Yeah. And, and plastics interrupt that in a bunch of different ways. One, through the extraction, right? When oil companies come and then man camps happen and then missing and murdered indigenous women happen, that bundle, right, interrupts those. Same with plastics moving into food webs. I don't have to prove that plastics cause harm when fish ingest it when part of the sort of relationships that you have with fish and your original instructions and all these sort of things are, are being literally interrupted by plastic showing up in their guts and in their, in their flesh and that sort of stuff. So it's colonial all the way up and down the chain. That yes, and there's one place that's colonial that we haven't talked about yet, and that's environmentalism. So a lot of the solutions to plastic pollution are also colonial. Well, thank God for them, right? They're going to help us fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so at least it's consistent, right? So I mean, it, okay. You know, so how yeah. are envi- how is environmentalism uh, part of the problem? <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about let's just just let's just start baby steps. Alternative to plastics. Corn instead of dead dinosaurs. Great. Where do you get corn from? Oh, the dispossessed fields of the Midwest. Oh, right. (laughs) That doesn't help. Um, So circular economies. You you extract from different sources and extract differently so that you can continue the the dispossession of indigenous people, you know, for the good of the world, right? Uh, Commons, right? Appeals to the commons. Well, who's not in the commons? Indigenous people who used to live in the commons, right? So, So, or even beach cleanups. Let's do a shoreline beach cleanup. Well, you need to ask permission to do that beach cleanup from the indigenous nations whose lands that is. Nope, we're just going to imagine a settler future, plastic-free, and go without permission and clean those things up. So one of the things I talk about a lot is how environmentalism is not the opposite of colonialism, and doing good in one register can still be doing colonialism in another. Hmm. And did you mention hydroelectric dams? Oh, we can talk hydroelectric dams. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Let's make methylmercury over here in Inuit food webs. That's what the dam over here is doing. Um, Yeah. And that gets tied into like the the climate change debates and that sort of stuff too. Yeah. I mean, what I think is really interesting is your argument is really based on colonialism as ongoing, as embedded, as something that hasn't been acknowledged as what makes a lot of our worlds possible, whether it's the pollution side or the activism side. And I think people don't really think about life that way. They don't think about entitlement to land as the basis for research and activism. And that's, I mean, I think that's a real contribution to to think that way um, because it does reorient and unsettle a lot of the things that we take for granted as good. Yeah, well, I mean, even like environmental scientists, even people like myself, I'm like, woohoo, I'm going to do good in the world. I'm going to be an environmental scientist. Okay, Max, here's your first inheritance. Uh, threshold models of pollution. We're going to be able to pollute up to a certain amount of plastic. And then it takes me a few years to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That seems screwed up. Why is it screwed up? And oh, it's because it, it's settler and colonial and industrial entitlement to indigenous land for industrial futures. Right. 
So the things my activism was based on, the things, the state regulations I would appeal to, uh, all based on colonial land relations. Um, and I was talking to Rick earlier about how it gets, it gets really hard to remember that colonialism is so dominant that it, it really says what counts as common sense. So like, yeah, let's do a beach cleanup. Actually, that's colonial. What? <laughs> uh, environmental science. Actually, that's colonial. What the f*** do you mean? Okay, is, is there anything that's not colonial? Uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, yes, there is. There are things that are anti-colonial. That is the point of my lab. But it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort to figure it out yeah. uh, and yeah. to figure out what land relations you've inherited that you think are normal and are really not. Um, you you have some great lines that I don't often see, if ever, in academic texts. And one of them is, uh, this is in the section Environmentalism and Colonialism, you were talking about uh, the Ocean Conservancy, but you could be talking about any number of environmental NGOs. And you say, this is not to say that this NGO is evil in terms of the way it's conducted itself towards Indigenous people or even aware of its colonial mindset. Colonialism doesn't come from asshat goons, <laughs> though, it, though it certainly has a large share of such agents. <laughs> Asshat goons. That's such a great phrase. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that's a heavily edited. One of the one of the best uh, series. Well, I mean, Candace was a reviewer, so feel free to talk about this. But I had some really sloppy dick jokes in there the first go around, and it was politely and gently pointed out to me that dicks are not actually inherently bad, and maybe I might be be uh, doing some some gender not goodness and i was like oh so it took me so long to come up with ad has goon as an acceptable body reference that was not overly gendered or might be interpreted as anti-trans um so there you go there's my there's your gift rick as had goon i can't talk about dicks because i'm biased but uh okay um i actually had to go to scotland Scotland, Scottish folks have like the best swears ever. Um, and so I was like, and, and Trump was in power and he had visited Scotland. And so I could just go through Twitter and collect like brilliant Scottish swear words. Huh. <laughs> I mean, that is like a hilarious part of the book. Um, and I was one of the, the reviewers who <laughs> did say, hmm, how does this translate to multiple audiences? <laughs> So there's so many great moments in the book where you kind of have the asides where you recognize that people have, you know, sort of commitments to certain ideas like that, all, you know, environmental science is all good or environmental activism is all good. That to me makes it really approachable, the kinds of arguments you're making. But I also think the really hard thing to get anyone's head around is this other point in you, you quote um, Sean Wilson from the book, Research is Ceremony. Relations are more important than the thing itself. And to me, this is the powerful way of reorienting our, you know, our very like sensory ideals, right? That everything is in relation to everything else. And so how do we begin to sort through what those relations are and how have we miscategorized things, you know, as a result of not thinking about how, you know, everything is related. And, and you know, and some relations are more important than others. I think you make that point pretty powerfully too. But, you know, when it comes to establishing what constitutes too much, you know, like the, the distinction between pollution and contamination you know, a lot of that regulatory, you know, business, regulatory framework, regulatory lobbying 
doesn't acknowledge relations, mm. doesn't actually think through what the ramifications are of, you know, changing one thing or limiting the levels of another thing and, and how that sort of interrelated web, you know, has a, a, a broader impact, right, on all of the extending relations. So to me, that's like, you know, I, I feel like before I read your book, I had these sort of formed thoughts from various things I had read, but your book really brings it all together and, you know, presents us with this, uh, you know, really big challenge of living with industrialism, living with an industrialized environment and how we begin to sort through our relations and what our obligations and responsibilities are as a result. Definitely. And I think too, like, even when it comes to something like industrial relations, a lot of people are like, oh, well, those are bad. And you're like, okay, but what do you mean? Like, not what is, what do you mean by bad, but what do you mean by industrial relation? Oh, industry is bad. Well, industry isn't a monolith. I agree that industry is bad. It's very handy and can get some stuff done. But if one of the, if to go back to this idea of this, the plastic production graph since 1945, um, it increases exponentially. And actually, um, the plastic industry is what's bailing out the oil and gas industry right now. And 90% of oil and gas growth is supposed to go into plastic. So that graph is going to keep going. Um, but there's two moments in that graph where there's a dip down, where there, you know, production was increasing, increasing, and then urch, and then back up again. And so those are, so I was always like, what, what relationship was that? What happened? What were the relationships that scaled and that mattered to plastic production in those moments that can tell us what an industry relationship to plastic is? And the first moment was in the seventies during the oil crisis when international flows of oil stopped. And the second one was the, uh, the big, uh, market crash you know, when all the money went away in Wall Street and well, the great, the great recession, the housing, the housing implosion, sub, subprime yeah. market. Yeah. Uh, that, like that, that whole cluster of things, all of that happened and the mark and we got into our recession and that's another moment. And so that was about capital and having sort of liquid assets. So those are the industrial relations that matter to plastic production and the increase of plastic production. That's different than what consumers can get up to, but it tells you a lot about relations that matter. And like you said, Candace, Sometimes when people hear like, all my relations or all things are relational, they, they imagine, and I, students have drawn this for me, so I know they imagine this, this sort of even web with like these little nodes where everything is connected, but it's connected the same. And I think part of the point of the book and my work is like, no, it is not connected the same. Mm-hmm. It is connected unevenly. Some things are important and proximate. You have a different set of obligations to the mail carrier than you do to your daughter. You know this. The same thing happens in industry. The same thing happens with pollution. So let's talk about these different and uneven relations and get specific because you need that specificity to make change, right, for your theories of change. But isn't um, a supposed cardinal value of, of scientific work is reproducibility? And if you're saying, no, 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 things are different in each instance, in each moment, the two don't seem to kind of play well together. Let me tell you about reproducibility and plastic pollution in Newfoundland and Labrador. So when I got here seven years ago, I was trained in the standard methods for looking at plastic pollution on shorelines. I was like, awesome. I'm going to go do a study. There's a shoreline right there because the island of Newfoundland is an island. There's shorelines everywhere. So I go out and I'm ready to do the standardized, reproducible, universal method. And it involves scooping sand into a bunch of sieves and I looked for days for sand and there's no sand here 
So even like even this this conceit that that science requires reproducibility, that the environment can be standardized in different mm-hmm. places because it's essentially the same, and you you just have to uh, sort of scaffold it so that you can get the certain sort of data does not work here. And in fact, does not work in the vast majority of the world. So me and a couple of colleagues, um, a bunch of colleagues here, Jess Melvin, among others, uh, they looked at all the English language plastic pollution shoreline studies, like over over 300 and something research sites. Only 2% of them were like, yeah, it wasn't on sand. But over 60% of the world does not have sandy beaches. And then another 30% of that is ice, right? So so reproducibility means that we only know things about beach resorts and we don't know anything about the vast majority of plastics on shorelines around the world. So there are real problems with the standardization and reproducibility thing because it misimagines what environments are like and it can't do place-based research. So it might be reproducible, but isn't valid, right, in so many different places. Or valuable, yeah. Valid or valuable, meaningless. Pointless. Hmm. To if me, I can find sand here. There's like two feet of sand here, and if I only did my studies on that two feet of sand, my studies would be useless to this province. I, th- I think you're going to have more than chemists mad at you by the end of this discussion. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> if I could ask you, Maxwell, just to, to to help firm up for me what you mean when you talk about how you don't want to focus on the effects of colonialism so much as the structures, or, or as you put it. Uh, poetically, I'm less interested in the teeth of colonialism, that is to say, you know, stealing, absorbing, consuming as much land as it can. You're interested in the bones. Can you expand on that for us just to help us understand the difference? Because, I mean, a lot of people, myself included, just kind of see them all together. And I'm curious about why you feel the need to uh, parse out and differentiate, recognizing that they're all, all of a piece, analytically anyway. So it has to do with my theories of change and how you make change in colonial systems. So if you focus on the effects of colonialism, right, consumption, pollution, uh, and you only deal with with those, you only deal with its teeth, then you can dull its teeth and that's it. But it can just keep chomp and chomp and chomp, right? The structure is still there that will keep reproducing things. Mm. Um, so I can say things like, oh, there's, there's really no thresholds for plastics. And then the government says, great, we're going to ban plastic straws instead. And I'm like, Shit, that's the same relationship, but a different bucket. Hang on. Right. So huh. I have what, what's, what I understand as an infrastructural theory of change. So if there's a hallway and there's a bunch of doors people can go through, they'll take all those different doors. But if I build a hallway and there's only two doors, people have to go through those doors. And it doesn't matter if I've won their hearts and minds, and it doesn't matter if they agree with me. They only have two options, damn it. And so I'm really interested in finding out, like, what are the things that reproduce colonialism and make doors or not doors, especially because it's so it's so ingrained and it, it's become such common sense that changing hearts and minds is going to take way more lifetimes than I have and more generations than we will have. And so if you change the infrastructure, it just doesn't matter what people think. They're going to go a different way. And that's why I try and change like the science and the infrastructure and the tools and the frameworks and less worry about like cleaning up the plastic after it's already landed. Although I do that too. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about care too. So care is, I feel like this concept that uh, you know, I first encountered in scholarly literature with people really, you know, it was radical. And yet you're critical a little bit of care because it's, you know, not necessarily inherently good and uneven as well. 
And and I think like most people, when they think about care, it, it is like the taking care, the taking care of things. But that's not often part of the the way that um, industrial societies, you know, concern themselves with with land or people often. Mm. Um, and so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what care looks like uh, in your work. Yeah. So, I mean, Michelle Murphy is the one who talked about care and colonialism before I did, right? So I learned a bit from that. But it also comes from experience. So one of my most important experiences of genuine care was the 60s scoop, hmm. right? So uh, I'm adopted. I have five siblings. They're all adopted. We're all Native. Our parents are white. But part of the 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 logic of the 60s scoop that my at least one of my parents was part of theorizing and practicing is that if you have white passing kids and you don't tell them they're adopted and you raise them white, they will be more successful. And look at me, Dr. Max Liberon, not suicidal, not addicted, not whatever these deficit claims are. And so in some cases that is borne out for them. Also incredibly violent, still genuinely care, caring and, and careful. And so that is my most deep experience of well-intentioned and violent care. And when I see people doing things like beach cleanups or talking about the annihilation of entire material categories like plastic straws, which are essential for people's disabilities, when, you know, that sort of stuff, that is also care and it is also incredibly violent. And so I really needed a theory of care that wasn't inherently good and that had massive capacity for violence when it was also understood and practiced as genuine care. Right, because I don't think it's enough to say, actually, mom and dad, you didn't care, or actually, environmentalists, you don't care, because they really, really, really do, and their care is love, and it sucks at the same time. And so this is where this ethic of specificity comes in, where yes, you can do good and violence at the same time, and and the result isn't a wash. The result is reproduction of some good, and as well as reproduction of colonialism. Mm. So that's why care isn't there. It's uh, it's intense, <laughs> and I didn't put my family drama in the footnotes. Um, no, you save that for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, save it for the podcast. My parents yeah. are going to read the book. We always overshare. Yeah, yeah. Mom, Dad, ooh, they know. We've had chats. <laughs> They're well aware. <laughs> but it's funny. Some of the scariest. Uh, harmful people out there are the most sincere. Yeah. Like they really believe in what they're doing and the road to hell. Yes. Paved with nice white ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, when I taught media ethics, that's what I used to always say. Beware yeah. of good intentions. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting note. I think to leave things on, um, part two, we're going to talk about wh where we go from here and Mitigate, ameliorate, reconstitute, insert verbs here. Um, what to do about plastics, what to do with plastics, if we're not going to ban them entirely for the reasons you just intimated. Um, so thank you very much, Max. <laughs> My pleasure. For, yeah, getting us to this point. And I look forward to, um, geez, I mean, there's a lot of pressure, right, Candice, to put to frame things. Okay, here's the problem. Next up, the solution. I know. <laughs> but I have a feeling it's going to be a little more ambivalent than that, uh, as, as <laughs> if you couldn't tell already. So we'll talk to you next episode, Max. All right. Till next time. Thanks, Max. No problem. That's it for Media Indigena, episode 258, recorded the early afternoon of May 18th, 2021. Thanks again to Max Liberon, 
Assistant Professor of Geography and Associate Vice President of Indigenous Research at Memorial University, as well as the Director of CLEAR, the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research. And thanks, of course, to Candace Collison, Associate Professor in the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies and the Graduate School of Journalism at UBC. I'm your host and producer, Rick Harp. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you again soon. theme is nesting by bureaucratic for the rest of the conversation find media indigena episode number 259 wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to subscribe that's it for this one future ecologies season four is headed your way